everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Macrovisor podcast. I'm Mayhem, and I'm joined by my co-host, Aisha. Aisha, how are you doing today? Great. Super excited to be recording the fourth episode. I am too, and this episode is going to talk a little bit about the short-term mentality of markets, because what we've seen is that there's a deterioration in the macro and fundamental picture, but it doesn't seem to be priced in. And you got some feedback about that recently, didn't you? Indeed, I did just today. The yield curve inversion being at 91%, which is probably one of the worst we've seen in our lifetimes. And um, I got a reply saying, but the market doesn't seem to care about it. The truth is, they're not totally wrong. I mean, the rally that we just saw was, you know, um, something was very severe. I I still think we're in a bear market, and I still think it's a bear market rally. But no doubt, it seemed like the market was shrugging off any of the macro or the fundamentals. It does seem that way, and it does seem like we're breaking back into an uptrend with the retest of the 200-day moving average, with the breaking above the exponential 8-day moving average, and that sort of retest of the downtrend line bouncing off of that. Markets are sending a pretty clear signal that they want to move higher, and that they're shrugging off bad news and rallying on good news, which is one of those classic signs that there's sort of this bullishness where buyers are taking control. And I think with that and the head fake we had lower and the reversal from that, we could have more room to the upside, yet there's so much room to the downside in the macro picture. There absolutely is. And I think when people are talking about you know macro being disconnected from the market or even the fundamentals being disconnected from the market, to a certain extent it is. But the one thing that we need to remember when it comes to macro or when it comes to fundamentals is that it plays out over um, a period of time. It doesn't necessarily have an impact immediately. So we get earnings every three months. And although we get um, you know macro data almost every month or what seems like every week, um, it's not necessary that the macro data will immediately have an effect. Now, I think people are confusing this a little bit because over the past six to eight months, we've seen certain data points and we've seen certain surprises in earnings that have really moved the market in terms of share prices of the bigger tech companies or even just the overall market. I mean, do you remember the CPI day that we had in November? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I do think it's interesting because a lot of the opinion on earnings hinges on this idea of whether there's a surprise to the upside. But if revisions have been too aggressively low, then it's very easy for earnings to surprise on the upside. And what people don't often look at and what you've pointed out repeatedly is that it's very important to look not just at these expectations versus performance, but also sequential performance of revenue and earnings quarter over quarter, and that seems to be showing some pretty significant deterioration. Now, on the one side, you could say, well, maybe things are looking a little better because companies are seeming a little bit more optimistic. CEOs are mentioning the word recession a lot less in the fourth quarter than they had in the third quarter and prior quarters. But on the other hand, we see that forward earnings growth is continuing to be revised lower, suggesting that there is a pretty meaningful slowdown. In fact, in some of these companies, 
they're actually seeing deterioration. They're seeing negative growth. Yes, indeed. And so for this quarter, what we got was about a 4.6% decline in earnings. And that was even after energy and industrials were up massively. So energy was up 57% year on year in terms of earnings. And industrials were up 38% year on year in terms of earnings, which is a lot. And it should have sort of, you know, brought us back to a place where, you know, we've had like flat growth, but instead we actually saw negative growth. And what's worse is, Q1 is coming in now at almost negative 6%, which is quite a deep uh, or rather a steep decline. But I don't think it ends right here. So if you remember, I put out an article a few weeks ago, which said that, you know, we're looking at a 13 or my prediction was like a 13, 14% decline in earnings. And on the other hand, there are banks who are talking about 18, 19, 20% decline in earnings in a worst case scenario. But I think we're very close to a worst case scenario. And we are in somewhat of a recessionary feel, even if it's even if it's not going to happen immediately. It does feel that way too. In fact, it feels like we're almost in a situation where we're seeing some delays, right? There are some buffer effects that have forestalled what may already be somewhat inevitable, but somewhat sort of delaying that inevitability. That is to say, we've had buffer effects from a resurgence of liquidity from the Treasury General account, from the Bank of Japan, the People's Bank of China. Noteworthy, the People's Bank of China injected more liquidity into their capital markets in the last two months, and they had in the last two years put together. And that makes a lot of sense to see that resurgence of economic activity because we have the second biggest economy in the world reopening. There are demand flows that are coming from that in energy, in raw materials, in agriculture, in travel, and otherwise. And you've got the second wealthiest middle class in the world, largest by population, total Chinese population has well over a trillion dollars in aggregate savings, their middle class about three quarters of a trillion. And that money is starting to come out. And it's starting to get back into the global economy, particularly in some of these peripheral emerging markets, but really everywhere. And that has an impact of growing the economies around the world just a little bit, offsetting some of this negative pressure from rising rates that liquidity coming into the market, but also that economic activity starting to be rekindled. And it's interesting because the Chinese credit cycle has diverged a bit. We've we've seen them ending their credit cycle earlier as they did after COVID started to, um, the, the in policy impacts of COVID, I should say, started to kind of become a little bit too intense and they're forming multiple asset bubbles there. They ended their credit cycle earlier and now As central banks around the world are starting to end their respective credit cycles in their country, China's starting a new one, and that's having a buffer of impact. But it seems like it's just forestalling what is inevitable. It doesn't seem like these countervailing impacts are necessarily canceling it or promoting this idea, this this mythical unicorn of a no landing. Absolutely. And what does no landing even mean? I mean, for me, I, I think we we love to do this in the financial world. So for as long as I can remember, bankers love to make up terms which sound uh, different and smart. But 
in a sense, um, there is actually nothing called no landing. The economy has to go through the motions. And it's like you rightly said, that even though we're not seeing the effects in um, there and there seems to be quite a lot of a delay because of the liquidity, because of the very tight labor market as well, um, the recession might be delayed, but that doesn't mean that it's completely canceled. I agree. And I think that's a really important point for one other reason. And, and that's that there's these policy impact delays, right? The Fed, when they change rates, when they drain liquidity, there's a, anywhere between a 12 and 24 month delay, probably in the shorter end of that spectrum for how it impacts and when it impacts the economy on a larger scale. And that, that might be weighing into this as well. So I think one thing is, um, as I said, because the Fed raised rates so aggressively, more aggressively than we've ever seen, there were certain things that broke very early on, okay? And that probably gave people the idea that, you know, this hiking cycle is going to be very effective very quickly. But there comes a point where, and we are probably at that point right now, not just because of the liquidity and not just because of the tight labor market, but we're at the point where um, things are going to stabilize a little bit before we see the next leg of the tightening cycle. So I would rather say that, you know, we're in a balancing phase right now, and then we see a third phase of this tightening cycle where things actually start to break down. <clears throat> and as you rightly pointed out, the effect of the interest rate hikes and all of this continue. Because, and the Fed knows this, because if they didn't know this, they wouldn't say that we're going to raise rates and hold it there, right? There's a reason they're going to hold it there, because even holding it there for a significant period of time is going to have a tightening effect. So it's not like the tightening happens only when rates are being raised and that's it. This all will play out, whether, you know, gradually or a little bit faster. The problem is we don't know how fast uh, because we haven't seen something like this before. So I yeah. think we do get all the effects, but just not very immediately. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting because there's other situational factors that have never existed before as we approach this period of a more challenging economy. And one of them is that the legislature of this country put five to six trillion dollars into the economy. And those effects are still sort of slowly wearing off. We can see that the savings rate is dropping, but excess savings is still relatively high. We saw that a lot of demand for goods was pulled forward into late 2020, throughout 2021, even arguably into early 2022. But as that demand paradigm shifted from goods, when everyone bought everything they needed for the next several years, into services, that's become a stickier side. And that's caused some of these inflationary pressures to be a little bit more durable. And it's also, similarly, those cumulative tightening impacts that you've alluded to, those are things that take time to manifest. Every day that rates are kept as they say, higher for longer, 
it has a growing impact on households and on especially small and medium businesses, but even larger businesses as they have to refinance their debt or get into new debt or if they have revolving lines of credit that they tap into as well. Essentially, the cost of capital continues to rise and there are compounding impacts of that over time that tend to limit consumption. And we've been in a debt-driven economy for the most part in this country for decades. And now maybe, just maybe, at least for the time being, the idea of lower highs and lower lows in rates may be over. I mean, it's hard to go too far below zero, right? Absolutely. And we can see this effect. So, for example, today um, there was news that said three-month LIBOR, and LIBOR is the benchmark that's been used all over the world to um, price floating rates. So even here, when we give out loans, we give out loans based on the LIBOR rate. So the three-month LIBOR has hit 5% after 15 years. So for 15 years, we never saw a LIBOR of 50, 5%, sorry. And now we've hit that. What's changed? Nothing. The Fed raised rates about a month ago. Yet we're seeing this rate go up today, right? So this is how it works. There are various factors which can, you know, pull forward, you, you know, the, the hike or, you know, the increase. And there are various factors that can slow down the increase. Now, coming back to your issue of services, I think that's a very important point, And that's something that we need to sort of hit on a little bit in the sense that with services inflation going up again, or rather seeing some increases, I think the other part we will see now is still being quite high. So we've seen some decline in the employment cost index, but I don't think we've seen enough. And this is something with the tight labor market, this is something that will cause inflation to remain sticky. So unfortunately, I think the weight spiral is kind of happening. And this is something that we have feared for a long time. We've talked about for a long time. And I think the weight spiral is playing out to a certain extent here. It is an interesting dichotomy, though, isn't it? We have generationally low labor force participation. So there's all of this workforce that could come back. I mean, part of this is aging population, but there's still a lot of folks that simply aren't working. And yet, and maybe part of this is from the gig economy, part of it is from the wealth effects of crypto and stocks rising so much over the last 14 years. But we could argue that maybe if we started to see some of those wealth effects diminish, we could see a higher labor force participation rate. But as you point, aptly pointed out, the labor market of those actually participating is extremely tight. There's 1.9 jobs available for every unemployed person seeking work. And until that ratio starts to come back more to a level of about even wage growth, the path of least resist resistance remains upward. And that is to say that, yes, the rate of wage growth will slow, likely, 
but it, it's still appreciably higher than what the Fed has signaled they're comfortable with. They want to see 2.5%. Maybe they'd be okay with 3%. We're well above 4% there. And I think that that also suggests that it has that feedback loop effect, as you've, as you've pointed out, as we've discussed, that we have wages growing, which causes services prices to grow, which causes wages to grow, and it kind of just feeds on itself. And we also see something else, something the Fed really hasn't wanted to see. That some of these near-term inflation expectations going out a year per the University of Michigan survey are on the rise again. Absolutely, they are, and uh, that's a very interesting thing because it it would, contrary to what the market is telling you, people are telling you that they think that you know inflation hasn't been conquered. They feel that the Fed's job kind of is not done here. They probably don't think too much about raising rates and stuff like that, but they do realize, they do feel the pinch of inflation. And their expectations are inflation remains humbly. We see prices go up again. And we see that going back to uh, the topic of just what's driving this. On one hand, we also see that in the durability of the pricing of oil. And oil tends to lead goods inflation higher. So it's really a bit disconcerting to see that we've had this disinflationary period on the good side. The, the, the goods inflation situation has looked a lot better, but arguably we may be reaching some limit here. Fertilizer prices remain very elevated. Energy prices are stabilizing and on the rise again, and this could be leading us to pockets of goods inflation rising again. We've seen it in certain parts of food and agriculture, but this may become a more pronounced theme. And one of the things about higher for longer is the Fed is talking about rates, but it could also be the rate of inflation. One of the reasons the Fed wants to go higher for longer is Powell has aptly pointed out that they don't want to make the same mistakes as their predecessors, which the mistake was cutting too soon, reflexively cutting when the economy slowed down. He feels that the only way to really hit inflation with the limited set of tools that central banks are given is to smash demand with a hammer. That's the only thing they can really do. The Fed can't expand the supply of corn or crude oil or cotton or other commodities. There's nothing they can do to do that. It would help a lot if we could expand that supply as well as the su supply of labor by any means necessary, but they can't. It's simply not within their purview. So what they can do is they can weigh on the other side by appreciating the cost of capital, by removing liquidity from the financial system. And as we've been discussing here, one of those levers is not just to keep raising rates or keep running off the balance sheet. It's to get to a plateau where you keep those rates appreciably higher into a slowdown, if not even a recession, so that you can really efficaciously subdue demand over a protracted period and recalibrate people's inflation ex uh, expectations. Absolutely. So, and I think that this is going to be the case, not just for the Fed, but also for Europe and for the UK. I don't think any of these countries are going to be cutting rates this year. I don't think we see a pivot, whether it's from the Fed or from any of these countries. I think we continue to see <clears throat> rates rise into the summer and being held there 
to the end of the year. If there's any sense or any thought about cutting rates, I think we might see that next year, probably even the back half of the next year, but not even, not even you know, until the first half. So they, they need to give this time to work. And we need to give this time to work um, in the sense that we will always see the market um, move on a day-to-day basis, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the macro is not playing out in the background, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the fundamentals are not playing out in the background. Absolutely right. Well said. And this does point to what we've seen, this, this change of the narrative. For so long in late 2022 and early 2023, the idea was a pivot was imminent. And, you know, for us, the idea of a pivot is actually cutting rates and going back to balance sheet expansion, right? A pivot back to the previous policy framework. And the narrative continued to change. At first, the pivot was cuts, and then the pivot was the idea maybe of a pause. But the reality is a real pivot is cuts, and it has to be cuts. And yet we've seen the pivot priced out from Fed funds futures until March of 2024, so the first cut now, which was initially priced in September of this year with two cuts, one in September and then one again in December, that's been wiped off the table. We've also seen the policy rate go from an upper bound terminal rate of 5% being priced in all the way to 5.5%. So the idea of higher for longer is starting to be priced into Fed funds futures expectations. And that is, like you said, the macro in the background recalibrating expectations. We've seen it in the bond market as well. We have the six-month bill yielding well over 5% for the first time since 2006. So you could reasonably argue that in the background, the, the puzzle pieces for the macro picture of higherist for longerist have started to fall into place. I like that. Um, I, I think we are looking at a situation where we have Highest to longerest now. <laughs> um, right. So I think the takeaway for today would be that we will always see moves in the market. And that's nothing, that's not to say that, you know, the recession is canceled or that, you know, we're starting a new bull market or any of that. There has to be multiple signs. And we can't be starting a new bull market technically when we are just about in the middle of an earnings recession. Um, I, I still think there's more pain to go. We still have to see the GDP print for Q1. Things haven't been good with the macro data, although um, we, we're not seeing moves in the market related to that. But there is a number of things playing out in the background. And that's something that we need to be mindful of all the time even if we're trading on a day-to-day basis or a week-to-week basis. 100% agree. And I would say it would be very interesting and unique and problematic for investors if we were to start a new bull market from these declining valuations, from this kind of declining growth or even negative growth. It would be the most expensive bull market in history. It would probably be the shortest lived. 
And we do get a lot of head fakes. As we've talked about in the past, there were something like six new bull markets that happened after the dot-com bust, none of which were real. Eventually, a real one did come to fruition, but it was all the talk of soft landing. The, the end is already you know, behind us in terms of the bear market. We're, you know, blue skies ahead. And while I love to be optimistic, I really favor realism when it comes to long-term investing because I don't want to invest at these valuations. I don't believe, like you, that we're in a new bull market paradigm. I just think that we've had over a decade of near-emergency level stimulus and almost constant upward price revisions over longer timeframes that many people have forgotten how to manage risk or what a recession or bear market really looks like. And that's recalibrated expectations in a way that's maybe a little unrealistic as to what might be to come. And then compounding that, over 50% of volume in options and about $1 trillion of notional a day are in options that are expiring in six and a half hours or less. So the idea is if it's not happening in the next five minutes, it's not true. But as we discussed today, over the longer term, a lot of these themes are likely to have an impact. And that's why it's important to keep an open mind, have a long time horizon, and be patient because a lot of these types of deterioration that we're seeing underneath the surface, they take time to be priced in. And this sort of idea of a no landing and new bull market here they will likely eventually fade into the distant memory as sort of laughable notions, just like almost every other time. In the last six recessions, the idea of soft landing was bantered about until it became pretty clear that wasn't going to happen. So I should thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Macrovisor podcast. This was a lot of fun. I love doing these. I can't wait to share this with our audience and do our next one next week. But until then, I hope everyone has a wonderful week ahead and we'll catch you soon.